And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. It's Wednesday. That's Bruce Anderson Day. That's smoke, mirrors, and the truth. And hello there. Welcome to Wednesday. Peter Mansbridge in Stratford, Ontario. Bruce Anderson is in Ottawa. Smoke, mirrors, and the truth. That's the name of this program. That's the name of this segment of the bridge. And so today we're actually going to start with some smoke mirrors and the truth, which would be a good thing, you know, living up to your title, right? It's been a smoky week. It's not like there isn't stuff to work with here. Uh, There certainly is good stuff to work with. And I'm going to start with the Alberta Sovereignty Act, which has that whole ring of, oh, here we go again. Is this like Quebec? Is it separation? Is it sovereignty? Is it... You know, what is it? Um, well, yesterday was finally the day where Bill Number 1 of the new Alberta government was introduced by the Premier, Danielle Smith, and her Justice Minister standing beside her. So it was introduced in the legislature, and then she rushed off to give a news conference, and the two of them stood there, and they were grilled by the Alberta press corps. And the, the, the central point seemed to be, like, who has final say as to what legislation could be used to prevent Ottawa from infringing, as they say, in, into provincial affairs? Well, it was clear that the legislation, according to the journalists, made it very clear that the Alberta cabinet had the final say, and they didn't have to talk to anybody. They could just write it up the way they wanted to, behind closed doors and introduce it. Now, at first, the Premier and the Justice Minister said, no, 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 that's not the way it's going to work. It doesn't work that way. Uh, Finally, after about 20 minutes of a very awkward news conference, they basically had to say, well, yes, that actually, that could happen. It could happen that way, which looked pretty bizarre, I got to tell you. And then what happens is the smoke and the mirrors and the truth finally kind of sorts itself out. The premier says, hey, listen, we don't want to ever even use this. This is just a threat to Ottawa to keep them away from our things. So I'll be happy, she said, if I never use this legislation. Meanwhile, in Ottawa, there's a whole different kind of smoke and mirrors going on. The prime minister, you know, reporters kind of chase after him and say, hey, what about the Alberta Sovereignty Act? What are you going to do about that? And he does in his voice that we didn't hear at all last week when he testified at the emergency sack. He's pretty good at that in that testimony. But here he was back to his old way of, well, you know, uh, I'm not really interested in the Alberta Sovereignty Act. I don't, I don't even think about it. I'm more concerned about the people. I'm concerned about inflation and health care and energy prices and whatever the things may be. So I'm just ignoring that Alberta thing and walks on by. So what did we get? Did we get a good lesson in smoke and mirrors from everybody yesterday? What do you think? Well, I think the starting point for me is, uh, Peter, is to go back to why did Premier Smith bring this piece of legislation forward? And it has to do with the fact that when she was running for the leadership, she wanted to establish her kind of rebel credentials among the most um, aggressively unhappy a conservative voter base in the province. And so she came up with this, I, you know, this 
rhetoric, which basically said, if you want somebody to punch Ottawa in the nose, I'm your person. I am the person who is going to take the most strident position, give voice and vent to your anger and your frustration with Ottawa. And that's where this came from. Now, the challenge, of course, once you're premier, is that it is only at best, at best, I mean, the, the high watermark for the number of Albertans who want to separate from Canada is 23, 24%. Everybody else wants to stay in Canada, and many of those people think that, on the whole, Canada is a pretty good relationship for them, and and indeed even for the province. So, she got herself trapped a little bit by this rhetoric of having to live up to the uh, the idea that she was going to be the, this champion for doing battle with Ottawa because she wanted to win the leadership of a party that has a lot of people in it who who care about that issue. Now she's premier and she's trying to find a way to walk a fine line between sounding almost separatist enough for the hard, hard, hard separatist part of Alberta of voters, um, but Canadian enough for everybody else who's saying, just hold on a second here. We, we didn't elect you. I'm talking on behalf of or in the voice of um the rest of albertans who aren't party members of the ucp we didn't elect you uh we didn't choose this idea of an alberta sovereignty act and we're not sure we want to do too much to tear the relationship with the rest of the country up um and so maybe modulate that a bit i think that's what she tried to do the problem the second problem is so so that first problem really is I think she ends up sounding like a a faux separatist to the separatists, and she ends up sounding half-hearted about Canada to everybody else. And, you know, I kind of feel like this. we've seen this movie before, a version of it. Aaron O'Toole tried to appeal to the, the farther right base of the Conservative Party and then to the nearer right small-c Conservative voter, and it ended up being the situation where he found himself in hot water with hardcore conservatives and in and um not being that interesting to uh people who otherwise could consider voting conservative because they didn't think he was kind of centrist enough and 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 so i i don't think that that's a very viable strategy for her and i think jason kenney is another uh case in point that she could that she could learn from but uh, she chose this path, and she chose it despite being advised not to go in this direction. There was plenty of uh, of commentary, not just in the media, but I'm sure the expert advisors that she has and in the public service in Alberta that said this is a meaningless law. Uh, this is a piece of performance. I'd say performance art, but I don't think it was very artistic. I think that it it just looks like a kind of a ham-fisted, way of turning what was a strident political line and became a more mealy political line into something that looks like a piece of legislation, but otherwise doesn't really act like a piece of legislation. And that's some of what came out in the in the commentary uh, after the fact and in the uh, in the Q&A during the uh, the announcement. Well, all I would add to that is that, you know, two things, really. Um, it started off looking very ham fisted. And appealing, as you say, to the to those who put her in the in the leader 
slash premier's chair. But it ended after all this confusion looking looking not like that at all, looking like this really was performance art, looking like we're never going to use this. Now, she didn't say we'll never use it, but she said my plan is to never use it, right? I don't want to have to use it. Um, so I, if, on that scale, it, it looked performance-based. Uh, now, I'll, I'll give her this part. She was very clear, even off the top, uh, that this is not some separatist threat. This is not some, in spite of using the word sovereignty, which, uh, you know, appeals to a certain, uh, you know, a certain group. Um, she uh, she said, I, I'm not a separatist. I love Canada. I this, I thus, you know, that about Canada. So, so she made that very clear right out of the gate about where her personal standing was uh, on the country. But, you know, she included, a, you know, her, her, her set piece on, on why she thinks for the last decade, Alberta has been basically screwed by Ottawa on a number of fronts, um, and that the, the, she felt this was needed to sort of set up a, <laughs> I don't want to say a firewall, but to set up a, 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 a the threat that the, the was that was now existing in Alberta if Ottawa pushed too far. Yeah. Um, but I also, you know, I, I think the other half of the uh, of, of the charade yesterday was what was going on in Ottawa. I can't believe that nobody in Ottawa cares about this or is examining it or the part of the bureaucracy and the Privy Council office or wherever um, is not looking at this to see, okay, let's we better have a hard look at this so we know exactly yeah. what the possibilities are. But the Prime Minister basically dismissing it and saying... This is not my issue. I don't care about this. I, I care about the people and the things that are bothering them. They they don't care about this right now. Right. Well, let me let me. Uh, I want to pick up on that point, Peter. But I want to say one other thing about um, the law yesterday and the performance. The underneath the decision to have this law is a preoccupation with the idea and the thematic of. The only reason um, there is pressure to reduce carbon emissions and greenhouse gases and fight climate change is because there's a liberal government in in Ottawa. And that's just patently false. Um, Almost all, if not all, of the major oil and gas producers in Alberta have their own carbon emissions and net zero targets and have them because that's where their investors want them to go. That's what their employees expect them to do. Indeed, that's what the majority of Albertans want them to do. But it's easier, I think, politically for a conservative party to win seats, especially in rural Alberta, to pretend that all of this pressure to reduce emissions and to find cleaner alternative energy sources is because there's a guy named Trudeau in Ottawa. And so she'll continue with that fiction. But more and more Albertans every year know that it's a fiction. It's not really true. It kind of feels good when you say it and it, and it kind of brings people out to rallies, but the world is moving in a direction and the smarter people that I've talked to in the energy sector or in the economy of Alberta or just regular folks in Alberta say, well, the last thing that we want to do is send a giant flashing signal to the investors from around the world and the customers 
who might buy our products, energy or other products, that we are uh, so-called anti-woke capital, that we don't care about inclusion or diversity or reconciliation or reducing carbon emissions. So this is the bigger issue, separate and apart from the law, for which she had all of the ability to do the things that she says she wants to do with the law without the law, just as every other premier do. They can they can call for hearings to talk about how disgusted they are by federal incursions into their responsibility. They can pass motions. They can shout from the rooftops. That's part of politics in Canada. It always has been. So the law is really just a confection and a bad one, I think, for the image of Alberta, uh, because it speaks to an idea that the challenges that uh, she wants to rally people around um, are are really just a, a question of bad things being done by a bad government in Ottawa. Now, turning to Trudeau, just before you, just before to, just before you yeah, get to Trudeau, uh, I know there will be some people in Alberta who are supportive of what uh, Premier Smith is saying, yes, and suggesting who are going to say, "What the hell does he know?" Yeah. you about Alberta and what the oil industry in Alberta thinks and what they're doing. And, you know, who's some guy from Ottawa to tell us what we think? So you better give us a sense. I mean, I know um, that you, you've worked a lot with um, Alberta energy uh, companies and the oil industry in Alberta over the last at least decade. But you better give us a hint of that. So, uh, you, you, yeah, you I can think it's probably true that I've done more polling of Albertans and Canadians and other parts of the country's uh, country on energy issues for 25 years. Um, and uh, we publish a lot of those polls uh, showing where Albertans are at on things like a carbon tax, on emissions reduction, on everything back, going back to Kyoto. Um, which I think was essentially the first global meeting about the carbon emissions and climate change. And so there's no question that um, I'm not Albertan, but it doesn't mean I haven't studied Alberta public opinion. And, and what I'm trying to reflect on here is not how I wish Albertans were, but what I've seen in the data over the years, which produces, for example, the situation where Rachel Notley out of nowhere became the premier of Alberta after decades of conservative rule and also produced a situation where Jason Kenney found himself in a situation where uh, the hard right of his party didn't like him and the center of the province didn't like him. And it was telling for me that within an hour or two of Danielle Smith tabling this legislation uh, that Jason Kenney resigned uh, elected office. And I believe it was because he did not want to vote for this piece of legislation. Uh, and I mean, he was going to leave anyway. He had said that, but his, the timing was the most clear shot, uh, that I've seen taken in a long time by somebody who understands the power of a clear shot. So I'm sure there are going to be people, Peter, who are going to say he's a central Canadian. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Fair enough. People can have that opinion, but it is my opinion, and it's not just made up out of air. It is something that I've studied a lot over the years. Okay. Um, Trudeau. Yeah, Trudeau. Well, look, there would have been two possible alternatives for Trudeau. Uh, One is to say, I'm really worried about this, and I want Albertans to know that I want them to feel sovereign and they don't need this act or and uh, 
or he could have said this is a terrible act and um uh, I'm uh, horrified by it, and Daniel Smith's a horrible premier. Um, neither of those make any sense for him. The only uh, option for him that makes sense, especially since he didn't just hear about this law yesterday, he's had briefings on it. He's had memoranda from the Justice Department lawyers who study these kinds of things and would have said, based on the law as we see it, uh, it's meaningless. Uh, all it is is a prop for more political activism, which is going to happen with or without the law. You're going to get that kind of rhetoric. And so the question of whether you say, I'm going to engage in the rhetorical fight is really a question of, are you going to give Danielle Smith um, more kindling to put on the fire that she's starting to, or she's trying to kind of keep going? Um, or are you not going to do that? So the right answer for him, I think, was to say, we're not going to be preoccupied with this question of sovereignty for Alberta. Uh, we're going to be preoccupied with the cost of living for Albertans and for other Canadians. And in a way, um, if you look at what Daniel Smith has been tweeting over the last 48 hours, I took a look before we recorded this, almost all of it is about the cost of living and, and those kinds of concerns. It's almost as though she knew she needed to table this thing, but she didn't really want to talk about it every day. Because she understood uh, the same phenomena that you and I have observed when we're looking at Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland is that the biggest criticism of her by the Scots is that she seems preoccupied with separation to the ex to the uh, to the exclusion of other everyday concerns, and I'm sure that Danielle Smith doesn't want to look like that that she wants to endlessly have this conversation about some form of of sovereignty within a united Canada and have people go, but what about the healthcare system? And what about the school system? And, you know, where's the economy going? Okay, so at the end of the day, you agree with me, there was a lot of smoke mirrors and probably a little less of the truth yesterday on both sides of this story. No, I, I don't think Trudeau did anything wrong. I think that he said well, the right thing. Wrong. You didn't like the way he said it. You thought it was more like the old Trudeau than the the new Trudeau, Emergencies Act Trudeau. And yeah. uh, I didn't feel that 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 much. Maybe a little bit, but my my takeaway: we didn't get a chance to talk about his um, his, uh, his appearance. How much appearance. of it was performative? Appearance. Um, God help us. If, if you and I could perform for five hours, uh, that'd be pretty good. I don't know. Uh, you know, it feels to me that at a certain point, it just has to look, it has to be a little bit more real than you might want to give it acknowledgement for. But my takeaway was when Justin Trudeau is in a scrum or a press conference, he has a style that reflects a sense of frustration um, and uh, and a way of kind of delivering his points where he doesn't want to kind of stop and take a breath or he doesn't want to finish the sentence too early. He doesn't want, maybe it's because he doesn't want the next question to come, maybe because he doesn't like the question, maybe because he's had too many unpleasant encounters with the questioner. And he's not alone in that. Literally every politician who's ever been in the limelight for any length of time has kind of found themselves disliking the scrum. Um, they all like it at the beginning, 
when it's the first opportunity to uh, to deliver their point of view, but that wears off very quickly and it becomes a, I don't like this anymore. Why do I have to do this? That's the kind of the intern. So in a, in a press conference or a scrum, that's the kind of the feeling that comes out in the way that that manifests for Justin Trudeau is a different style than what we saw at the, at the, um, at the hearings. And the other style that he has is for the public town hall uh, where, you know, you and I've watched these over the years with him. He'll, he'll kind of walk around the room and he'll try to animate people and he'll be animated himself. But to my eyes, it does look performative. It looks like a show. It is a show. Um, doesn't mean it's bad, but it isn't that appealing. Um, and it feels uh, overly performative. I I thought yesterday was sort of a, it was very short, so I don't want to overstate it. But I kind of felt like um, his tone of voice was a little bit more like um, Friday. Uh, but it was a scrum, so it had a little bit more uh, of that scrum feel, too. Well, I, one area where they for sure were the same is they they both didn't look entirely comfortable in the scrum. Um, Danielle Smith yeah. really didn't look. She got increasingly uncomfortable as, as, as the thing went on, and the looks that she was giving and the number of times she tossed to her justice minister to try and get her out of the situation she was in, um, the whole thing looked uh, looked awkward, to say the least. Okay, we're yeah. going to move on. Um, uh, I can't say that we've, we've faced agreement on, on, on the way we look at yesterday, but um, it's close. You know, it's relatively close. But okay. it doesn't have to be, you know, like. No, it absolutely doesn't have to be. Um, okay, we're going to take a quick break and then come back, and uh, Bruce is going to defend Donald Trump. So that should be interesting. Here we go. By the way, yeah. Okay, we're, we're back. Peter Mansbridge in Stratford, Ontario. Um, Bruce Anderson is in uh, Ottawa. And you're listening on Sirius XM Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform, or today being Wednesday, it's also available online and uh, video-wise on YouTube, on my YouTube channel. You can find that by uh, just going to YouTube or going to my bio on Twitter or Instagram and clicking on the link. And we do the video podcast for two reasons. One, because Bruce likes to get dressed up and look extremely proper. And I, after 50 years of getting dressed up and standing in front of a camera, um, I find it's time in my life where I can just be the real me. I don't think I've worn a tie. Let your hair down. (laughs) Nice. Thank you. Um, I don't think I've worn a tie, maybe more than once or twice since my last appearance on the national um so i'm in a very relaxed mode yeah and continue to do so um okay next topic i did a little tease that bruce is going to defend donald trump that'll that'll be the day here's my question about the, the latest trump fiasco um you've been either covering politics analyzing politics or being in politics for most of your adult life. Mm-hmm. And you've been an advisor to key leaders in both the Liberal Party and the Conservative Party over time. And I want to know, 
Can you draw any kind of comparison to a situation where you would think it was okay to let your leader head out to dinner with people he didn't know, claims to not know, um, one of whom is a white nationalist, anti-Semite, the other you kind of know who's an anti-Semite, both publicly declared positions on on both these guys. And he sits down, he has a dinner, and he claims, well, I didn't even know, didn't really know who they were. Well, I kind of knew Kanye West, or Ye, as he's called now. Um, but can you imagine something like that ever unfolding where, where as an advisor to a leader or a former leader, I mean, can you imagine... Brian Mulroney say, oh, I'm going to go out and meet some people at a dinner. I don't know who they are. Haven't checked them out. Haven't been vetted. The Secret Service doesn't know about them. Or Jean Chrétien saying the same thing. Not Secret Service, but RCMP. Can you imagine anything like that happening? No, this is total hogwash. I really feel for American journalists who are faced with this dilemma all the time from Trump, which is, which of the outrageous things that he just did should I focus on first and then second and then third and what falls to fourth, fifth or sixth and I don't end up having time to focus on it. But um, first of all, uh, you know, I've been uh, lucky enough to have dinner at your house with you and, and your wife, Cynthia, on many occasions, especially when we were spending some time in Scotland. But the notion that, you would say, come over for dinner. And, uh, and I would show up with two other people. Like who does that? Nobody does that. And so if nobody does that in regular life, just regular people, I, Oh, hi, Cynthia and Peter. I just brought these other two people. One of whom, you know, one of them, we don't know. Uh, can we sit down? It's not a thing. So, Take that just that general, like, what's that standard for normal people and say, how would it work if um, you were the president of the United States and you had this place called Mar-a-Lago? And I said, I got to talk to you. I'm really having a rough time and I need your advice on something. And you go, uh, yeah, all right, come on over. And I show up with two people, one of whom is a raging anti-Semite. Um Well, first of all, you have a dozen or more Secret Service people around you all the time. And nobody goes to your dinner table, comes in your house without them knowing who that person is, without there being a discussion about whether that person is welcome in the place. They're not setting a table for Donald and Yee And it's like, oh, pull up a few more chairs here without staff going, wait, what? Who, who's, who's here with him? Like he has staff there. He has secret service people there. There are so many ways that this didn't happen by accident. That even if you accept that Trump broke all of the normal rules and loved the chaos, he didn't love it that much. There was some, there was, there were some checks that happened through which this person passed and 
back to my point about journalists, the, the first focus has been this kind of horrified reaction that he's having meal with this this anti-Semitic person who's whose comments on the public record are really shocking. Yes, and that is the big kind of source of horror. I get that. And then it's why haven't all of the other Republicans uh, really trashed Trump for doing that? Many of them have. Many of them have been quite silent about it. So that's another legitimate issue. But what's kind of passed under the radar, at least in the in the discussions that I've seen, the journalism that I've seen, has been the this his defense of it, which is I didn't know this guy was coming, and he showed up, and it, like, um, and then he went away, and uh, I don't have anything to say about that. That doesn't hold water at all, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, so I'm glad you asked that question, and that's my 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 take on it. I, the the line I like best from uh, one of the reporters who's been covering this story is, um, how do you make sure you don't invite an anti-Semite who you don't know to dinner? And the answer is, make sure you don't invite an anti-Semite you do know to dinner. <laughs> It's true. It's true. <laughs> because, you know, Kanye West, is um, that's what got him into so much trouble, was his anti-Semitic remarks um, that have been constant and uh, have been, you know, glaring in the last, uh, you know, few months. Uh, Donald Trump's daughter is Jewish. His, his grandkids are, do- is are Jewish. Jewish. How does that, um, how does it not occur to him, even about Kanye West? You know, he sort of imagined in his public comment, Trump did, that, you know, Kanye West has been uh, kind of badly treated by sponsors and the business community for the things that he said, as opposed to he said some things that were outrageously anti-Semitic and the world is reacting to that. So you can't look at him having that dinner and, and say he didn't really know what Kanye West had been saying, and he was kind of unaware of the uh, of the anti-Semitic context for Kanye West, let alone the uninvited, unexpected, unknown guest. The only conclusion you can come to is that he's launched his presidential re-election bid. He knows there's competition that could beat him. He knows the people that he needs to have in his corner and cheering him on. And he's sending a signal to them. He's yeah. sending a signal to them. And so deliberate, not accidental. And the, the further proof that it wasn't accidental is that even as his son-in-law and daughter were probably reading his comments, wondering, is he going to castigate this anti-Semite? He didn't. And he continues not to. He just says, I didn't know him. Well, that's deliberate. I mean, over the years that we watched Trump, we know that when he has had chances to distance himself from racists, he almost always decides not to. Yeah, and he sends signals, just as you said, and this can be seen as a signal like he sent to the Proud Boys, another uh, racist uh, white nationalist group. Yeah. Um, when he said, uh, you know, stand back and stand by. Yes. 
clear signal, which they took and, you know, and printed up T-shirts saying that exactly on them. And then yep. they were there on January 6th. Um, as for his daughter, um, she, she seems to have, have cut loose from her father for the first time yep. in a very public way. Um, and some of it may have something to do with this. What's been interesting about the last couple of weeks, ever since the midterm disaster, uh, and now especially so with this, is for the first time we seem to be seeing serious cracks uh, within certain elements of the Republican Party. Now, these are cracks we've been waiting to see since 2016, since the, uh, you know, that uh, tape came out of him talking about grabbing certain parts of a, a woman's body. Um, but, you know, in the last two weeks, the number of Republicans who have stood in front of a microphone, in front of cameras, and said this was wrong um, has not been insignificant. It's been rather substantial, not, not from the leaders of the Republican Party, not from the Mitch McConnells or the Kevin McCarthy or, you know, the variety of Ted Cruz's and all the other uh, Mm-hmm. you know, a strange collection of uh, Republican senators and leaders in that party. But a lot of, um, well, more than foot soldiers, but uh, significant elements within that party have actually stood up and said said things. And if there's, you know, th- this may be, <laughs> I don't know how many times we've said this, this may, may be the moment that finally starts to put real distance between the Republican Party in an attempt to remake itself and Donald Trump. Um, you know, the, the next uh, weeks and months will, will tell. It, it may be certainly the, um, you know, when we think back to the primary season um, before the 2016 election, there were, what, I think 17 candidates, if memory serves me correctly, and 16 of them really were uh, anti-Trump and there was Trump. And so the 16 that lost, um went away with a lesson, which is that the power of Trump in terms of rallying that base is pretty strong. And it had, and that, that kind of carried him all of the years since then, in terms of his ability to stare down people within his party who thought he was doing horrible things uh, and to primary them and to run candidates against them and to uh, kind of ridicule them. And that's worked for him for a long time. And now after the midterms, it became possible on top of being necessary for Republicans to say he's actually not had a really great record. He lost his reelection. He, uh, you know, he lost the first midterms that he had a chance to, uh, to fight and he didn't do well this time. And a lot of the candidates that he uh, promoted didn't do very well. So to challenge his record as a electoral success story became possible and then when DeSantis looked in the polls as though he was a viable alternative to Trump uh, among the base of the Republican Party, just enabled everybody else who wanted to take a shot at Trump for good and righteous reasons or for personal and competitive reasons to decide that this was this was OK to do. But it's still kind of tentative. Kevin McCarthy, uh, the guy who wants to be Speaker of the House is careful not to criticize Trump for having dinner with uh, this anti-Semite so far. And the reason he's, um, he's, he said nobody should have dinner with an anti-Semite, I think, but 
he's been very careful not to say anything negative about Trump. So there's still some of that infection there uh, in that party. Uh, and it has to do ultimately, Peter, with the, I was having dinner with some folks talking about the difference between Canadian politics and American. In Canada, we have a 20% segment of our uh, voter base that is pro-Trump, 14, 15 to 20% pro-Trump. And there are a lot of other attitudes that go alongside that. In America, it's more like 35%. It's a much bigger political force. And so those politicians who are wondering where the funding is going to come from, who's going to show up and vote uh, on the Republican side, they've got that on their mind. And certainly that kind of uh, figure, 30 to 35%, probably a little higher within just the Republican Party, um, definitely a little higher. Uh, yeah. th- that's a significant group to work off of if you're in a race against more than a few people. That's what and it's a, it's, a, it's a real hard choice to decide that you're going to um, push back against them, uh, which is how they interpret criticism of Trump. But still the right thing to do. Okay, we're almost out of time. This has been um, this has moved very quickly the clock today. Um, but I have two or three minutes to deal with. Are we going to talk about your golf swing? I sent you a nice <laughs> video clip of your swing. Oh, we're not going to talk about that today. No. The tip that I gave you. Okay. No, I'm working on that. Well, all right. What's the last item? Elon Musk, Twitter, COVID. Put those three words together and uh, tell me the latest. uh, Well, you know, he, amidst all of the stuff that you could look at and say, well, he's a genius of a sort that we can't, the rest of us can't quite discern. He's making all these moves that seem like bad moves, but there must be some genius because he's got, you know, he's done these other things in his past. I think that the the weight of that argument is, uh, is, is drifting away. I think that the arguments that he, he's just a master of chaos and his, uh, the consistency of his thoughts isn't there and the strategy for, uh, rebuilding value into uh, Twitter isn't clear. Uh, yesterday's decision to basically say we're ending the work that we had been doing to keep people from promoting misinformation around COVID. And as you may recall, as our, our listeners may recall, during COVID, there were quite a lot of uh, sources of misinformation, probably some of them foreign, all of them with, well, most of them with ill intent to disrupt, um, to kind of deny or undercut the legitimacy of authority figures, whether it was Dr. Fauci or the CDC or the pharmaceutical companies or the um uh, uh, the medical experts, there was a lot of disinformation. It had an effect on whether people were willing to take the vaccine or willing to wear masks or willing to accept some sort of slow and slowing of their uh, social interactions. And so the, uh, the wisdom at the time at, at uh, Twitter was that there needed to be some effort to moderate that kind of content because it was having an effect on lives and it was disrupting the economy and it was causing uh, division. Um, and because the underlying content was false. Um, so Musk decided 
yesterday that the time had come for him to say, we're no longer checking that. If people want to flood that information into our platform, that's going to be okay with us. It takes a very deliberate decision to say, we're going to make an announcement of that, right? As opposed to, even if you thought you didn't want to do it anymore because you wanted to lay off the people whose job it was to do it, and maybe there's not as much disinformation about COVID as there used to be, um, you could do that. And I'm not, I'm even as I'm saying that, I don't think that's the right idea. I'm just saying if you felt like you didn't need to do it anymore because the risk was down, probably you would just stop doing it. You wouldn't decide that you were going to announce that you were going to stop doing it. But to announce that you're going to stop doing it in addition to the other measures that he's been taking uh, is again a signal. And the signal that he's sending is much more like the Trump signal uh, than, than I had expected it to be. I expected him to be somebody who would say, ah, you know, I'm a, sometimes a Democrat, sometimes a Republican, mostly a libertarian. But the series of things that he did, including the day before the midterms, just, you know, endorsing voting Republican across the board, um, offering Trump his platform back on Twitter, um, you know, they're all they're all of a piece. He's trying to reach out to those uh, those folks who felt like their voices and their misinformation uh, hasn't been heard enough, hasn't been prominent enough. And it's hard to imagine that any good can come of that. Uh, you know, I got to tell you, I still can't figure it out. I hear exactly what you're saying and what his motivation may be. But at the same time, he's risking billions of dollars of not only his own money, but his company's money. He's risking the reputation of his various companies, not just Twitter. Tesla's taken like a huge hit this year. Yeah. Um, uh, and I, I I don't get it. I don't really understand. Listen, uh, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I acknowledge this guy is brilliant in a lot of different ways, but I don't understand if he's being brilliant in this just what's at the you know what his real motivation is on on doing the things he's been doing uh and what he's you know what he's done to twitter what he's done to tesla um i i don't i don't get it i don't quite understand it and uh you know maybe it'll become clearer i occasionally get mail from people who are big um elon musk fans um not necessarily Twitter fans or, you know, or liking what he's been doing with Twitter, but saying, you watch this guy, he's, he knows what he's doing. He's got a plan. He's, you know, you just can't figure it out yet. None of us can, but he will. And we'll all be surprised when he, when he, uh, when it becomes clear. Well, you know, maybe they're right. I mean, he's been in that, he's been in that moment before, but boy, right now, this last couple of months, it just looks like. A, a, an ugly picture unfolding in front of Elon Musk and his uh, yeah. his his turf. Okay, I got one Agreed. minute. If you want to say anything more, this is the time to say it. Well, Peter, all I want to say is I just hope you have a great day and look at that little video uh, that I sent you of your golf swing a couple more times because if you do that two or three times a day, uh, come the next time we tee it up, I think it's going to work better. I think it's just a really good practice well it may well do and i i can see where my fault lies i it's the problem is just trying to <laughs> trying to clear it up and trying to remember the 64 
uh, things that you've told me that I should be thinking of as I begin my backswing. <laughs> I, well, I I'm here for you all. every day. Yeah. You just, you send me a question anytime well, you have one. If it ever works, uh, you'll be sorry because suddenly I'll be leaving you in the dust. True enough. Uh, okay, that's it for Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth for this day. Tomorrow is Thursday, your turn, and the Random Ranter. If you got something to say, say it now. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks, Bruce, and thank you for listening out there. We'll talk to you again in just 24 hours. Mm-hmm.